0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: Welcome to the club
2: that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. pod, nord pod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Script Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show now let's get started hello friends welcome back to nordpod the voice of rare disease this is matthew zachary and we've got a great extra long but extra special bonus episode for you brought to you from the 2021 nord breakthrough summit Every year, Nord hosts the Breakthrough Summit in October to discuss what's new, relevant, and on the horizon in the rare disease universe. The session we're sharing with you today on NordPod is entitled Designing Trials for Inclusivity, Equity, and Engagement. And the discussion you'll be hearing addresses healthcare inequities and what we can do to create clinical trials that are more representative of and beneficial for the community itself. I think you're going to like it. It's definitely worth the listen. And if you get inspired to learn more... Check out NordSummit.org, that's NordSummit.org. Now let's get started.
3: Hello, I'm Pamela Gavin, Executive Vice President of Nord. Our experiences with COVID-19 over the last 18 months have underscored inequities in our nation's healthcare system that need to be addressed as immediate priorities. Our next panel, moderated by a member of NORD's board of directors, Dr. Philip Pearl, will specifically focus on designing trials for inclusivity, equity, and engagement. Dr. Pearl is president of the Child Neurology Society and director of epilepsy and clinical neurophysiology at Boston Children's Hospital. We are grateful to him and our panel of experts for sharing their perspectives on this extremely
1: important topic. Welcome, and thank you for joining us in a very special summit being sponsored by NORD, the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And our topic is Designing Trials for Inclusivity, Equity, and Engagement. I am Dr. Philip Pearl. I am a pediatric neurologist. I'm the Director of Epilepsy and Clinical Neurophysiology and the William Lennox Chair in the Department of Neurology at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor of Neurology at Harvard Medical School in Boston. I also have an interesting appointment in the Music and Health Institute at the Berklee College of Music here in Boston. I'm the current president of the Child Neurology Society. That's the organization of pediatric neurologists in the U.S. and Canada, and have a lot of involvement, therefore, in child neurology in many ways, especially clinical trials. So this is a topic dear to my heart. Plus, we have worked very hard to develop a special task force in programming in leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I also should mention that I'm on the professional advisory board of NORD, and in that capacity have the honor of chairing and moderating this seminar. Who we have on this seminar is a faculty of three outstanding speakers and representatives from very important sectors of healthcare in our country. And I'm very excited to move on and introduce each of them to you individually so that we can hear a little bit about their background. And then we'll go ahead and have a moderated QA where they'll have a chance to respond to some questions and interact and converse about this fascinating area. I'm going to begin with Rear Admiral Richard A. Arrojo, who serves as the Associate Commissioner for Minority Health and is Director of the Office of Minority Health and Health Equity at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. In this role, Rear Admiral Arojo provides leadership, oversight and direction on minority health and health disparity matters for the FDA. Rear Admiral, please introduce yourself with uh, some of your background, we're so interested.
3: Thank you, Dr. Pearl, and good afternoon to everyone. It's truly an honor and privilege to be a part of this panel. On a extremely important topic, of course, advancing diverse participation in clinical trials. As Dr. Pearl mentioned, I am the Associate Commissioner for Minority Health and Director of the FDA's Office of Minority Health and Health Equity, an office that was established that singularly focuses on advancing the health of racial and ethnic minority populations and working to address health disparities. And a key priority area for our office is, of course, working to advance diverse participation in clinical trials. By way of background, I have been at FDA since 2003 and very excited to serve in this new role and capacity within the Office of Minority Health and Health Equity, where we have a dedicated mission working to address health disparities among underrepresented, underserved populations. And as many of you are probably aware, FDA has long worked to advance diverse participation in clinical trials. And we are committed to encouraging diverse participation and research that's used to support marketing applications for regulated medical products. Um, Following our FDA Safety and Innovation Act of 2012, which encouraged diverse participation and our action plan in response to that, um, we have continued our efforts to support diverse participation from hosting public meetings, developing tools, as well as issuing guidance documents. And I'll just say also, over the past few decades, our policy efforts have focused on promoting enrollment practices that lead to clinical trials better reflecting the population most likely to use the product if that product is approved. So I am very excited to serve on this panel and really look forward to the discussion.
1: Thank you so much, Rear Admiral Arojo. And I have to say thank you for your service to this country. Now, I want to say in in my academic career, the partnership With not just the FDA and the NIH, but with industry is crucial. And in a stroke of genius, Nord recruited a representative from industry. If it wasn't for industry, we wouldn't be developing these incredibly fascinating therapeutics, such as gene therapy and enzyme replacement therapy and antisense oligonucleotides, all these things we're excited about in the rare disease space, much less the COVID 19 vaccine. We wouldn't be there if it wasn't for industry. So I am so excited to introduce to you. Megan McKenzie from Genentech. Megan has 25 years, possibly more, she'll tell us, but looking at her, I think less. I'm told you have 25 years of clinical research experience in oncology, ophthalmology, immunology, neurology, and infectious disease. Megan's vision includes developing strategies to drive greater inclusion of racial and ethnically representative patient populations in clinical research and to support the optimal use of Genentech medicines. Uh, Meg, I have to say, I'm always interested in my colleagues and also a lot of my research assistants and residents who think about going into industry and I never quite figure out how to guide them. Please tell us a little bit about your background.
0: Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pearl, for that very sweet representation of my 25 plus years. It has been over 25 years. I'm very happy to be here. I'm a Very important topic for diversifying our patient and ensuring patients in our trials mirror the patients who have the disease we're studying. feel very lucky to be here and honored. My start was I actually did a little bit of work at NASA with human research subjects to understand how to get up in space and come back and manually steer that shuttle back in. That's kind of exciting after having some news around the shuttle this week. But uh, my entree was working at a site directly with patients in clinical research trials. And uh, uh, i was always very interested in human physiology and how we fight disease and just feel lucky to to kind of get some education around science uh, and i'd say more education is better that's actually part of our work at Genentech is a commitment to diversifying and mentoring and sponsoring students of color in stem and making sure we improve representation in our workforce in the sciences and then of course representation of patients in our trials. But I started out at a site working directly with patients and physicians like yourself, who I've always been learning a lot from, have always loved learning about different indications. And I ended up working with a clinical research organization where I could work with multiple sponsors, kind of understanding high unmet need areas and then coming into Genentech over 16 years ago. Very lucky to work on a few drugs that have made it through. As you know, it takes a lot of rigor around clinical research. That requires a lot of patient time and patient burden, which we're acutely aware of. And I, I think part of the solution of improving representation is being a little better and more thoughtful about incorporating patient insights early into our work and our site partners, ensuring they provide input into the protocols before we finalize them so that they're more open to all patients. But there's a lot I'll go into later. But at Genentech, we have formed three pillars to improve diversity and inclusion. One is foster belonging around our people and how are we ensuring representation at all levels, including leadership for all populations. Two is advancing inclusive research and health equity, which is the pillar I'm working on, increasing representation in our trials. I mean, as you know, only about 10% of the U.S. population participates in clinical trials. And there's top quality of care from our clinicians who work in these trials. And they offer more options that the patients can always choose whether to participate in or not. But there's options there available. Of the 10% who participate in clinical trials, over 85% in the U.S., are white, or of European ancestry, which means we could do a better job of reaching our communities of color. And we're becoming a minority-majority nation. By 2040, For 2045, we'll be a minority-majority nation. And today, over 40% of the population is not white, and we're not reaching these very underserved patients uh, in improving education around clinical trials. So the advanced inclusive research and health equity pillar is around education, around how we're partnering differently with our leaders, forming officer action plans, how we're partnering differently with our sites and physicians, and those who are reaching representative patient populations and amplifying those best practices across the work. And then Lastly, in uh, industry, we have a social responsibility. So transforming society is our third pillar where we are, um, we gave over, and and every industry should be giving to long-term healthcare improvement and infrastructure. And part of this health equity innovation grants, giving over 90 million in health equity and in social equity grants to improve cultural competency, uh, working with different populations, really ensuring we're reaching underserved populations, underrepresented populations, whether it's a community of color or folks who are in rural regions or lower socioeconomic status. So a lot of foundational work is being done. I'm happy to be talking about it today uh, in this panel.
1: Thank you very much. I now have the opportunity to introduce our third speaker who's going to give the perspective of a health care provider and he represents that so well. This is Dr. Michael Poku and Dr. Poku is a senior medical director for Oak Street Health, a network of primary care centers that delivers value-based care to adults on Medicare. Michael is passionate about developing and implementing novel care models and is a proponent of whole person care including access to novel, innovative therapies through designing equitable access to clinical trials. Welcome, Michael. Hi, I'm Michael
4: Poku, internist by training. I'm currently the senior medical director at Oak Street Health. And, you know, a big component, uh, an important component of what we're talking about today is really how do we address inequities, health inequities, which I think a large component of that is access to clinical trials and, and clinical trial diversity, so ensuring that people from diverse backgrounds have the opportunities and the, the the education and the awareness of clinical trials and are able to join those clinical trials if they see fit. I think it's a, it's a key aspect of advancing health equity, and we really have to start with you know meeting patients where they are in a broad-based manner, thinking about the various social determinants of health, thinking about that patient from a bio, psycho, and social perspective. So what we do at Oak Street is we focus on primary care services, particularly for marginalized populations, medically vulnerable and socially vulnerable seniors. As you might imagine, there's a large measure of, I would call stigma, towards clinical trials, right? So if people sort of think through, oh my gosh, I'm legitimately... uh, a guinea pig and things of that nature. So how do we really drive awareness and understanding of what clinical trials do and what they're meant to do, how they're designed, the protections afforded by IRBs and, and other things, and making sure that those patients that are um, that, that tend not to, to be in academic centers and things of that nature have that same level of access. And quite honestly, even the patients that are are at academic medical centers, how do we make sure that we're addressing the barriers to... To entry for them getting into clinical trials as well, with the goal in mind of you know ensuring that the medical products that we use and that are approved, their use in the the design and the, and the trials were are reflective of the population that those medical products are meant to serve. And again, this idea of really meeting patients where they are is I think paramount in all this, right? So it's about understanding. A, there, there are you know, awareness issues on both sides, and when I say both sides, both the patient and the provider, right? So how do we make sure that providers are aware of the myriad clinical trials that their patients may be, uh, may, may have access to? It's much easier if those providers are part of large academic medical centers quite the challenge if that's not the case. And and you have community physicians such as we do at Oak Street and like many others, uh, many other practices have. So bridging that gap on the awareness side, making sure that the providers are understanding of what potential innovations and clinical trials their patients have access to, and then making sure that we're communicating that to patients. And then there's a large piece around making sure that we are addressing all those social determinants of health and unmet social needs that prevent patients from all walks of life uh, of accessing these trials. So again, that's, you know, if the clinical trial protocol by the sponsor calls for six visits, those are six visits where somebody, you know, a patient, a family has got to figure out how to make it to and fro each of those visits. So is that the the sponsor assisting and helping patients make it across town or make it to the to the actual site to be able to participate in that visit is that you know what we've seen with covid there's been a a bit of an explosion towards decentralized trials and truly trials that are, are 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 virtualized which is terrific in terms of bringing down those barriers on the on the transportation side but then it sort of opens up a whole other pandora's box in terms of the digital divide and as we are thinking through and designing decentralized trials, virtualized trials, we need to think smartly around the digital divide and do the patients have the means uh, and the tools to be able to participate in those things. So really helping to, first and foremost, identify those barriers and then working constructively with multiple stakeholders to figure out just how we can minimize and eliminate all the different barriers in order to
1: promote a wide diversity of participants in clinical trial. Let's start off our panel discussion. And I, I don't have any particular order because all our speakers are just so terrific, but we're Admiral Arojo since we began the introductions with you. Can you tell us a little bit about FDA legislation or guidance to support clinical trial diversity? Of course, we're here with NORD. so. We are focused on rare disorders. I don't know if there's anything in particular you might be able to say about that as well.
3: Sure. I I mentioned very briefly in the opening about the FDA Safety and Innovation Act of 2012, specifically Section 907. I mentioned that again because that is really focused on reporting of inclusion of demographic subgroups in clinical trials and data analysis. And then following FEDASIA, our agency issued our action plan, where we were very focused on data quality, participation, and transparency. I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the panel discussion. But what I wanted to highlight is the most recent guidance that our agency issued, which I think is really important. This was a guidance that was issued in November 2020. And the guidance is focused on enhancing the diversity of clinical trial populations, eligibility criteria, enrollment practices, and trial designs. And the reason why this guidance is important is because it provides the agency's current thinking on steps to broaden eligibility criteria in clinical trials through inclusive trial practices, trial designs, and methodological approaches. Um, It also talks about recommendations on how sponsors can increase enrollment of underrepresented populations in their clinical trials and work to improve trial recruitment so that participants enrolled in trials will better reflect. Reflect the population most likely to use the drug if that drug is approved, while of course maintaining safety and effectiveness standards. And I think what's really important for the conversation today is that this guidance also talks about recommendations for broadening eligibility criteria and encouraging recruitment for clinical trials of investigational drugs intended to treat rare diseases or conditions. So there is a guidance document that does specifically talk about rare diseases and how we can work to encourage enrollment in rare disease clinical trials. But I also just want to highlight some of the other guidance documents that our agency has available. We have our 2016 collection of race and ethnicity data and clinical trials guidance document. And then we also have our 2017 evaluation and reporting of age, race, and ethnicity specific data and medical device clinical studies. And Dr. Pearl, when you introduced the plant panel, you mentioned, of course, COVID-19. And I think it's important to also highlight here that we have guidance documents specific to COVID-19 that also encourage diverse enrollment. One of those is our FDA guidance for industry on development and licensure of vaccines to prevent COVID-19. That guidance specifically stated that FDA strongly encourages enrollment of populations most affected by COVID-19, specifically racial and ethnic minority populations. And we also have a guidance document that was focused on COVID-19, developing drugs and biological products for treatment or prevention that encourage diverse enrollment. Um, So that highlights some of our FDA policy strategies that all work to encourage diverse enrollment.
1: Well, that sounds really great. And, And Meg, we just heard that the FDA has guidance for industry about increasing diversity in clinical trials, but we also heard from you how difficult It has been to have such representation in at least industry-sponsored trials. Why do you think this is the case? Do you think there's some way we can change that? Maybe you can even talk about the role of trust. Can you can you respond? Is all this guidance? But how do you make it happen in industry? Absolutely. First of all, we love this
0: regulation. We love the rigor. We need to be responsible to make sure we're reaching representative populations. So thank you for, for that, that regulation that's being out for pharma. We, we love it. We've been part of writing uh, around inclusion in clinical trials and how to do that better. So first, let's talk about some of the, the reasons we're not getting appropriate representation. And I can't overemphasize access, 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 access to doctors, access to testing like comprehensive biomarker tests, access to information, not just Dr. Google, but access to educational clinical trials, Office of, Office of Minority Health and Equity have done an excellent job on their website of trying to educate the public around clinical trials and where they might or might not fit in a treatment option for patients to decide we need more education like that. And pharma and biotech need to be very intentional in our partnerships. So when we start a clinical trial, we're looking for sites and physicians to help us find the patients for the clinical trial and for that illness under study. We need to be geotargeting sites with a catchment area and capability to reach communities of color to include them in our trials and ensure that we get a reach to those patients and patients who are more rural. And part of this is engaging not just our our sites we've been engaging before, but new sites or satellite centers from those hospitals that we're engaging with. So we're reaching further. They have a higher referral base. And when we look at sites who have the highest historical enrollment in trials, we also need to be looking at the highest historical enrollment of communities of color. So by ancestry and thinking differently about how we're partnering with those centers. One of the things that I've been very involved with over the last year is with four founding partners and sites, we formed the Advancing Inclusive Research Site Alliance, and these are centers that have historically done very well reaching communities of color and trials, and they're sharing their best practices with us, and we're, we're leveraging that to amplify it across Our our work with multiple sites and clinical trials, learning from people who are doing it well already. And some of their success is that they've really engaged the public. So uh, O'Neill Comprehensive Cancer Center at UAB has uh, educated over 600 lay people. So how are we, it's at three B's, Bishop, Barbershop, Beauty Salon. How are we educating the public and lay people who are trusted by people like myself? When I, I know I, it's like my counselor going to my hairdresser, right? How are we informing the public about what clinical trials are, why we do double blinds, why we have a high standard of care and placebos, why we're doing that research, and educating more fully? Some of the work we're doing as part of the site alliance is co-creating public education that's indication agnostic. It's clinical trial education with the DNI lens, and it it emulates a bit of uh, Rear Admiral Aroa's work of Office of Minority Health, who has some great videos as well. How are we doing more of that? And how are we representing an authentic voice so that communities hear us and building cultural competency? We're working with sites to co-create healthcare education around cultural competency in different communities and part of our social equity giving and health equity giving funds. Are leaning into institutions that are trying to build cultural competencies, working with different populations and reach. And you mentioned trust. So, you know, whenever this topic comes up with trust and distrust in research, right, we have a really bad legacy when we talk about Tuskegee trials, we talk about Henrietta Lacks and Um, You know, a woman who died of cervical cancer and her cells were used to find many, many uh, scientific targets and research without consent. We have changed that. Right. We have these regulations from the FDA that are in place to safeguard our patients, ensuring that we're looking at benefits and risks before a patient makes a decision to come into a trial and really monitoring well safety for the patient. Patient being central um, and getting more attention around what they need when they're in clinical trial. So we need to be able to build this education about what is, where, what is the clinical trial? Where does it fit maybe in a treatment option for patients and when and ensure they're, they're prepared, patients are prepared, the public is prepared to understand where it fits. So if they do ever need that option, they know where to go. Uh, the last thing I would add is, um, you know, it's really hard to keep up, right? There are so many clinical trials. Like, what if today, if I were to diagnose with a certain condition, where would I go? We don't really make it easy enough for a patient to understand where to go. And I would say there's a true partnership with doctors and specialists, like in the local area, understanding as a general practitioner, as a specialist, understanding who each other are in a given community and state so that you can refer to, not not even refer, but consult with each other so you understand what the options are available to your patients. There is an infrastructure there that we need to build um, in a trust in the the broader community among physicians, so a referral base is more easily uh, had. There's more, but I'll stop there because we have more questions, I know. But I think education is paramount and authenticity and building cultural competency between physicians and patients. And I think uh, pharma has a responsibility to help with that that public education. That's part of my, my work in advancing inclusive research.
1: That's a fascinating suggestion you have, because if I have a patient with a disorder that I think might warrant a trial, I'll go to the NIH website, clinicaltrials.gov. But it's not patient-friendly. So that's a fantastic idea you have. Is there a way we can warehouse in some way, clinical trials with industry's help so that a patient who's in search of a trial can access that information in a way that makes sense to them, in a way that's available to them. That is a great idea. We, we have a very similar challenge right now in, in medicine is the genetic testing, the, the um, sequencing of the exome has led to all these new diagnoses. But the information we get from whole exome sequencing, it, it's really confusing And once you do get a gene on a patient, you don't know what to do with it. You have to find some individual lab or researcher who may or may not be working on that gene. We need to warehouse all these kinds of new data coming out because the technology is there to do these things like sequencing of whole exome and even genome and doing clinical trials in rare disease space, as you just mentioned. But we have to somehow work out a system so that people can access that information and including people from all represented groups. Now, i really like to ask Dr. Poku about this issue of social determinants. You've spoken about the importance of social determinants of health on clinical trial participation. What are some of these social determinants, and what can we do to address them?
4: Yeah, so as we know, right, social determinants of health are, are so instrumental in influencing and in, the, in a lot of cases, dictating the health and wellness of individuals and populations. In clinical trials, it's 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 no different, right? So, really understanding all those things that impact patients, families, individuals' ability to access care. It's the same. It's those same phenomenon that, in those same factors, that impact patients' ability to enroll and stay stay enrolled in clinical trials. So, it's as fundamental as things as you know financial security, right? So, does that does that patient that family have the means to participate in trials? And do they have reliable transportation? Food insecurity is another big one. Making sure that the, the trial, the visits, are at flexible times because not everyone can take off and, and look at a visit protocol and say, absolutely, I, I can make it to these four, five, six visits across 12 weeks if they are in the middle of a work week. right? Because folks may be working one, two, three jobs and different shifts. And without that inherent flexibility, that may be challenging. So there are a myriad of things, but it really starts at really identifying those issues and, and understanding what various unmet social needs that patient uh, and that family are going through and being able to, to, to work with that patient to address those things. So can we provide transportation? Can we think about you know decentralized trials increasingly? And how do we really look at the visit protocols are uh, the protocols and the visits that, that are called for and do all those need to be in person? And if they do, where are the actual sites? And are those sites in convenient locations to a broad array of uh, of participants uh, it, with a, with all sorts of walks of life in, in, in biodiversity? So really, you know, sponsors increasingly are recognizing they have an obligation to promote diversity and they're recognizing that, hey, like we really have to, either address some of these unmet social needs ourselves or work with community stakeholders, community-based organizations to figure out those solutions and weave them into our process. Because it's no longer, well, I guess I was going to say to a lesser extent, is it about just, oh my gosh, I need to get participants as fast as possible. I need to just get this done as quickly as possible. There's increasingly a demand from the scientific community, from sponsors themselves, and from, from patients, folks who are using these medical products to demonstrate that this is truly generalizable and that you have done the trials and the due diligence on a diverse population.
1: So now I go back to Rear Admiral Rojo and let's see if we can get at least one more question into both of you before we run out of time. You're part of this Office of Minority Health and Health Equity, it was established at the FDA something like a decade ago. Can you just give us an idea? Uh, how that evolved, why it was necessary, and and well, what's the track record? What can you say about the work of this office and its legacy?
3: Sure, Our, as you mentioned, Dr. Pearl, our office was established in 2010. We were really excited to celebrate our 10-year anniversary last year and really the accomplishments that we've achieved since the office was established and of course i also have to highlight that of course we are not the only OMH office there are many OMH offices across HHS and across the various agencies and we really appreciate our opportunities to collaborate and work with them and specifically at FDA it's exciting to lead an office where again we are dedicated to working to address health disparities and working to address disparities of course among underrepresented and underserved populations and our key mission is really working to protect and promote the health of racial and ethnic minority, underrepresented, and underserved populations by focusing our efforts really in two key areas, and that's research and outreach and communication that works towards addressing health disparities. Of course, with our office being within the Office of the Commissioner, we work broadly across the agency as well as with a wide range of stakeholders to achieve our mission. And as we've talked about a priority for our work across everything that we do, whether it be our research program or our outreach and communication program is working to advance diverse participation in clinical trials. And I just wanna circle back to something that Megan mentioned, which I think is so important and that's education. When we reach out and we have listening sessions and we engage with our patients and caregivers We hear all the time about how many racial and ethnic groups are very willing to participate in clinical trials, but they often don't have information related to what a clinical trial is, what it means to participate, and where there may be research opportunities for them. So in order to really support and advance the FDA's efforts to advance diverse participation in clinical trials, as Meg mentioned, we developed our Diversity in Clinical Trials Initiative that has our ongoing multimedia education campaign. And that's really working to try to address some of the barriers preventing diverse groups from participating in clinical trials through a variety of culturally and linguistically tailored strategies, tools, and resources. We really are working to combat myths, to educate consumers about key issues. We are working to provide positive messaging, reflecting diverse spokespersons who are representative of diverse communities. We work to stimulate dialogue among peers and peer-to-provider groups, while of course tailoring those resources to be culturally and linguistically appropriate, and most importantly, translated into multiple languages. And I think this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, Dr. Pearl. One of the areas that I think is really important is making sure that we have information and resources that our diverse consumers can read and understand. So all of our resources are tailored in that way. And and while they are all available on our website, we also are more than happy and we have many organizations reach out to us, especially community organizations, and we will ship and we will print materials to them free of charge. So anything that we can do to extend our resources so they can be used to advance education, we think is critically important. And one other thing that I'll just mention briefly, again, all of this is on our website. We have hosted public meetings, we have webinars. We have public service announcements, videos, both print and digital materials. We engage in social media outreach. So we are really working to make sure that we have diverse means to reach our diverse consumers. And lastly, I'll just highlight, and Meg mentioned this too, collaborations and partnerships are critical. We know that when we're working to advance diversity in clinical trials, we have to engage across multiple sectors. So we have hosted listening sessions, as I mentioned earlier, with patients and caregivers. We engage with industry. We engage with a wide range of stakeholders. And we are constantly working to add new tools and resources.
1: Well, thank you. That's a lot of information on your office. And you had mentioned that Megan brought up education She also brought up some very deep issues in ethics and trust. You've got me thinking about all sorts of things there, including from the Hippocratic Oath to the Belmont Report to Mm -hmm. Tuskegee. Actually, the most egregious example of breach in ethics was Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And as as a member of the editorial board of the Annals of Neurology, we just published with the German Neurologic Society a series of papers that talked about how physicians dealt with Nazi Germany and Some of them resisted and some of them tolerated and some of them went along with it. And this has led to a whole series on neurodiversity that we're publishing in the Annals of Neurology. I'm gonna swing back to you with this question, thinking about all these things, education and ethics and trust. What, Megan, would be your primary message to companies conducting clinical trials to encourage participation among underrepresented groups?
0: Thank you, Dr. Pearl. I'll go back to. I'll even say linguistic. You, you've used linguistic a lot, uh, Rear Admiral Rojo, and we and we think about in today's world with our Latino and Latinx populations worried about immigration and ICE, right? And keeping information confidential and patient safety paramount. So we have a lot to do to educate and be transparent about the work we're doing. And one of the the key. Pieces of information a patient gets when they think about considering a clinical trials and informed consent, and these are too weighty. They're too long. There should always be a short form information consent for patients, so they understand what they're committing to, what the potential benefits and risks are. But really, give it to me straight, and make sure it's in a language I understand. It should be translated. And right now, I know we have long consents. We have more complicated trials. We have more molecules we're studying. So protocols get longer, consents get longer, we should always have these short term consents. We also should be, as an industry, supporting better patient support. So our sites tell us that They really need local patient navigators who can really walk hand in hand with patients to help them understand their options, whether that's a clinical trial or other treatment options. And then we need to to build and we're building a budget blueprint to help support enhanced patient support. You need that trusted person that knows that and all of us need this. I mean, if I had a wish in our healthcare system we would all have a personal patient navigator to help us understand where the social support is, where the clinical trial options are, what options and treatments there are, and which doctors to go to. And I think industry can be a part of that by including our budgets for clinical trials, local navigator support. That's something we're building now with our Airside Alliance sites. And that, that personal engagement, knowing the patient, knowing that it's about them. They're being monitored heavily for safety. They're going to be offered options more often and frequently because they're seen more often. They're seen by more specialists. I think that personal approach is important and we can't lose it. It it matters. Every one patient matters. So I, I hope that helps answer your question. I do want to come back to one thing you said around the complexity of, say, biomarkers. And how do we get that information quicker? What to do with that? I think there is hope with information technology. I think we're building those bridges so that when we run these molecular tests, I know different companies, we are doing it as well. Roche Genentech has Navify, but other companies are having this where they lift information compliantly with a site to give more clinical options. So bridging that through technology is extremely important so patients can learn quicker what their options are and get referrals faster. So just back to that. IT. Hope, I hope that was helpful. I think all the work that we're doing around reaching patients better will lift all boats. I know a question around, you know, what, what are we doing in rare disease where it's been, may not have clinical trials. Uh, how are we getting diagnostics done faster? You know, how are we proving the speed with which patients can get information? I think that's an information technology and information dissect what these molecular biomarkers mean, I think that information exchange is extremely important that we do that faster. So thank you for bringing that in
1: as well. That's terrific. Dr. Poku, what would be your advice to academic institutions or small companies conducting studies on a very limited budget regarding how best to conduct research to diverse communities?
4: Yeah, it's such a timely question. I mean, I think particularly for the academic medical Community academic medical institutions, there's such a, a responsibility, uh, for lack of a better term, for those folks to really be responsible and take the reins on community health. So I think it starts with building up and promoting health equity and advancing health equity and truly promoting community health. So it starts with you have, you've got to know your community. And you've got to know the stakeholders, you've got to know the leaders, you've got to know the community-based organizations and the folks doing the nitty-gritty work. Increasingly, it should be those academic medical centers doing that. But until you you reach a certain threshold, as an academic medical center, you really should be partnering with trusted community-based organizations who can help you in a, in a synergistic way to get the word out, to help understand what are the unmet social needs, what do we really need to do to promote diversity? How do we sort of tell the story? how do we build that trust in those communities? so it starts at the, the truly the, the, gra- uh, the grassroots level in going to ground in, in going to those different organizations, individuals, leaders that communities know and trust in forging and deepening those bonds.
1: Well, I've heard a lot of creative ideas today. It's good to hear that there are solutions out there. I want to thank our panel of experts. I want to thank our participants and audience for being here and taking all this in, because I think we're gonna make some real progress in designing trials for inclusivity, equity, and engagement. Hats off to Nord for sponsoring this and um, so many other great creative ideas with this summit. Thank you.
5: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855 AUDIO 66 and we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Our senior producer is Andrew McDowell. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by The Salvatones. Learn more about the music of The Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnote.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.